0: So if you have your Bible, Psalm chapter 8, we're making our way slowly but surely in our three-year journey through the book of Psalms, Psalms chapter 8. Let's read this uh, this first chapter tonight for the choir director on the Gittith, a Psalm of David. Love these words. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established your strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you would take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of heaven, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. Amen? All right, let's go home tonight. <laughs> Man, that was so great. This is the eighth psalm. It tells us there in your heading that this is a psalm of David. It says, On the Gittith. Now, we're not 100% sure what that means. Some think it might refer to gath and possibly a song commonly sung there or on an instrument that was invented there. Others have traced um, the Hebrew word to its root, believe its meaning would be wine press, and it would be maybe a joyful song for those crushing, doing the crushing of the grapes. Many scholars believe that Psalm 8 is one of those great psalms of Israel that was sung during the Feast of Tabernacles. That's when the wine would be gathered in. And then it says that Psalm 8, is a. it was written to the choir director, which means that again, it's intended for corporate worship, public worship. But it's a beautiful song of worship. Oh, Lord, our Lord, I'm majestic. You know, it's your name in all the earth. And it starts with God. It focuses on his glory. Notice one commentator, I didn't even write this down, but I think it's important. Like uh, one commentator brought out, I think it's in verse 4, The psalmist doesn't start there. He doesn't start in verse four. Like, what is man that you're mindful? That's not always starting worship with like this me-centric Lord. Lord, are you caring about me? Like, are you focused on me? No, no. He starts with God. He focuses his worship on the one who is worthy of it. Again, verse one, oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Notice in your Bible, the first Lord In most of your Bibles, I should say, the name is all capitalized, L-O-R-D, meaning Yahweh, Jehovah. Oh, Yahweh our Lord. Yahweh means he is. Yahweh is also the covenant-keeping name of the Lord. This is the name that he gives to Israel to reveal himself to the nation. Oh, Lord, he says, our Lord. And then the, the second one, Capital L, but small O R D. That's Adonai, our master, our sovereign. Again, this is a powerful statement that David starts out with. He says, Oh God, you're our master, you're our Lord, you're the one that's in charge of our lives. He says, How majestic is that name, your name, in all of the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. David, David's response to the name of the Lord is not one of fear, intimidation, but of worship, of adoration. He's just moved with amazement. He says, how majestic is your name? When I think about the name of my God, I'm just moving. It's moved my heart to worship. How majestic is your name? That, the, word, the Hebrew word for majestic elsewhere in scripture is described as a mighty ship. That's Isaiah 33. Or a leader or a ruler, Jeremiah 30. Or a noble, that's Judges 5. But it carries this idea to be one of impressive, almost intimidating power. It's a power that's visible. It's on display for all to see. And so he says, how majestic is your name? How powerful is your name? Your name is like a mighty ship. It's unstoppable. It's visible for all to see. That's the name of the Lord. Notice that his name is majestic in all the earth. He's not just limited to Israel. Not just limited to Jerusalem, but more than that, his name is majestic. It's powerful throughout the ends of the earth. He says, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. Notice the the psalmist here, David, he's painting this picture of God. He says, you are huge. Okay, that's Ryan's translation. I'm a very simple man. You are huge, God. You're vast. You're sovereign. You're master. Your name is majestic. It's powerful. It's like a mighty ship. Your name knows no bounds. Your power isn't limited to one place. It's larger, again, than Israel. It goes throughout the earth, and he says, your splendor, the splendor of your glory is above the heavens. He's saying it's higher than the heavens. Lord, the the heavens can't contain your glory. Amen to that? Your glory is immeasurable. Verse two, from the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established your strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. I want us to see the contrast here. In the first verse, David writes about the greatness of God. His name being majestic in all the earth, his power and glory above the heavens. And then now in verse two, he says that same power, that same strength that's like this mighty ship your same glory that's above the heavens is showcased, notice, in the mouths of infants and nursing babes. Wow. Infants and toddlers, if you will. Nursing babies is this, this picture of vulnerability, dependence. They have no strength in and of themselves. They're quite needy. But he says they're declaring the glory of God as well. Just like the heavens are declaring God's glory, so are these precious little babies. The New Living uh, says this in verse two. He says, um, it writes this way. You have taught children and infants to tell of your strength. The idea here is that God uses weakness to overcome strength. But only he can do that. He can use the weakness of an infant to overcome the strength of an army. God's glory, listen, is most visible, not in our craftiness, not in our strength, but rather in our weakness and dependence on him. That's where his strength, that's where his glory is most seen and revealed. It's the same principle that Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1.27, he says, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Jeff beat me there. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong or mighty. Says so from the mouths of infants and nursing babes. You have established your strength. Only God would do that because if your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. He's saying the reason why God's, God displays his strength and weakness is to silence the enemy, to bring them to an end. When the enemy looks out and sees the weakest the most vulnerable people and they're used in such a powerful way by the Lord it makes them shudder what church we've got to remember this reality about God because how often if I'm honest I look to the most popular I look to the most talented the most gifted to do the important work the heavy lifting if you will But man, that we would remember that God uses the weak. He uses the feeble, the vulnerable to accomplish his work. Why? So that his glory would be put on display. Because he knows that when he uses the weak, the less desirable, that no glory, no praise, no attention would be drawn to that individual. It can only go to the Lord. Verse three, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained. Here David is thinking about the creativity of God. He's thinking about the glory of God in creation. You can only imagine as a shepherd boy. We don't know when this psalm was written, but as a shepherd boy, there's no doubt that David would have spent many a night outside under the stars, tending to the sheep. And knowing him as that creative type, I can only imagine him just getting lost out there and just looking up. And um, he's kind of a guy that I'd probably like, dude, get your head (laughs) in. Come on, snap back into reality, you know, but he's like this creative type. He's just like lost for these picture words, like this imagery, just breathtaking to him. He says, man, I just consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, Again, drawing just this picture of God's greatness, his power. David knew that the awesomeness of creation wasn't made by God working super hard, relentless, tirelessly, sweating. He says, this is the work of God's fingers. You notice that? God didn't break a sweat when he fashioned the world together. I love that. In light of the majesty, the wonder of God, the power of God, the creativity of God. He says, when I stop and I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've ordained, he says, what is man that you would take thought of him? Verse four. And the son of man that you care for him. David is taken back as he's thinking about the beauty and the wonder of creation. And in the right perspective, I think it gives David this reality check. He says, what is man? When I'm looking at the vastness of your creation and thinking, God, that you had just put that all together with, the, with your fingers. I'm looking at your power and your majesty. What is man, God, that you would take thought of him? Or maybe your translation says that you're mindful of him. David's left wondering, God, you're big. <laughs> I'm small, you're great, you're wonderful, but who am I that you would even care about, that you would even think about me? I think of David's words in Psalm 139, how precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. You know, so many times when we blow it, maybe we sin just before the Lord and the enemy tries to lie to us, to tell us, oh man, God is done with you. He's gonna forget all about you. No, 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 no. David says here. He thinks about you. He's mindful of you. Maybe, maybe you're going through a, a difficult situation in your life. We've all been through those, whether we're in them right now or not. Just as. Hard season where we just feel maybe alone, we just feel up against a wall. You don't feel the presence or the nearness of the Lord, and you're wondering, man, has God really abandoned me? Listen to these words though. The Lord is thinking about you, He's mindful of you, He sees you tonight. He sees your hurt. He sees your pain. He sees what you're confused about in your life. All the things you've been through. He sees your brokenness. The Bible says that before we were formed in the womb, he knew us. He's been watching us. And I love that because where man fails, God never fails. You know, during covid this past year, our whole pastoral staff, not just limited to the guys, but even, even Carla and um, the whole team here at the church, we've tried, you know, tirelessly to connect and think about so many people that we just don't see often. And Lord, we're just like, Lord, bring those people to, to our minds and to our hearts so that we can pray for them. and And we just don't want them to ever feel forgotten about because some just haven't for you know, vulnerable sake or whatever. They're just staying home and you're watching online. We're talking about you. We love you. And that's how we, we, our heart is for our whole church. And we, feel this, we felt this burden this past year because we don't want those who are staying at home to, to feel like they're missing out or they're the lesser church. We want them to know that we love them. We haven't forgotten about them. But listen, even in our failures, to do the job, you know, that it, that it entails, to care for our church, even when we as, as pastors fail to connect with every single person and care for every family, David says here, the Lord is still mindful of them. The Lord is still thinking about them. And this week, it's been a huge relief to me. And I said, Lord, thank you. Thank you that you make up for our weaknesses that the Lord hasn't forgotten about any one of you in this room or watching online. His thoughts towards you outnumber the sands on the sea. How precious also are his thoughts towards you. Isn't that amazing? What is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you would care for him? David repeats this idea in a stronger way. The term son of man emphasizes the humanity of man. So not only does God think about you, and he thinks often about you because he's mindful of you. It says that he cares for you. Again, not only that God is carefully, you know, it's thinking about you, he's mindful of you, but he desires this personal connection with you. I love that. This word for cares means something like to hunt up or to seek out or to long for, to take care of. It's as if God is not just, again, thinking about us just in a, oh yeah, I wonder how they're doing. And that's it right? It's like, ah, oh, I wonder how Mike's doing. And I, I don't do anything about it, right? Sometimes I send you a text, but that's it. But his thoughts, it says here, go beyond just thinking, but it sparks this longing in his heart where he seeks us out to lavish his care, his generous care. That's the heart of God for his people. You know, I think about all the way back to the very beginning, Genesis, the creation of man, and it's all beautiful until you get to like two, two, three three chapters later in Genesis 3, man's worst day. Man fails, man just flops, sins before God, goes on the run. They bought the lie, they disobeyed God. But I love there in Genesis 3 that God, out of his mercy and out of his love for man, is found walking in the garden in pursuit of man. We find God calling out to man, where are you? Again, he's in pursuit of us, seeking us out, longing for us. Again, it goes beyond just the mental thought that he thinks towards you. He's seeking you tonight. The Lord is not distant from you. Maybe that's a word for you tonight. He's not detached from your circumstance or your situation. Even right now, I think through this text and through his word, he's pursuing your heart. He's mindful of you and he cares for you. I love that. Look at verse five. Yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you've crowned him with glory and with majesty. It's exactly the words of the author of Hebrews. Hebrews 2 7, you have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, and have appointed him over the works of your hands. He's saying that mankind. Is, the, is valued in the sight of God more than any of his creation. The highest achievement of all of God's creation is man himself. That's his highest accomplishment. And then in verse six, he says that there's a way that the Lord uniquely distinguishes mankind from the rest of creation. Look at verse six. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, and sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. So David clearly just recounting the creation story of Genesis 1, running through his mind, where God gives dominion over all other creatures for man to rule and to oversee Again, the, cre- the creation wasn't to rule over man, but man to rule over the creation. That was God's idea. That was his order. That was his plan. And then verse 9, David ends how he begins. The psalm, he says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic your name in all the earth. He ends the psalm with continued praise, praising the creating God who's majestic, whose majesty permeates all that he has made. You know, in verse one, we read this same verse, we read the same text. Our attention there is just drawn to the greatness of God. And I know we're kind of just breezing through this chapter. There's a lot to get to. But we're, it's just drawn when we say, oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You know, we're just drawn to look at his power and his majesty displayed above the heavens. You know, his name goes throughout all the earth. But here in verse 9, as it rounds out with the same words, it leaves us, or it left me, I should say, when I was going through this, in, in a state of awe. As we're made aware and we're brought to the reality that Almighty God isn't just this powerful, distant ruler in the heavens, but by His grace, He's mindful of us, He cares for us. I mean, who are we, right? David says that such a God would think about us, but He does. And not only does he think about us, he cares for us. He's elevated us above creation. And because of this unmerited, undeserved favor that's been given to us, it causes David to worship. The response to all that God is, all that he has done, it causes his heart to worship. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. I love that. Now. Deep breath, Psalm (laughs) 9, here we go. Last week, I'm like, I didn't, I don't know if I took a deep breath in between the Psalms, but tonight I'm like, (sighs) I'm going to insert my own Selah there. Let's just let that marinate. Like, let's just soak into that. Psalm 9, you know, it's it's hard to do and we're not going to do them separately, but Psalm 9, you can't do without Psalm 10. Many scholars have said that these two Psalms are really one long Psalm. In the Septuagint, it's one Psalm. The other reasons for it being one psalm is that in the Hebrew, these uh, psalms are an acrostic where every line or every, yeah, every line begins with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It's more uh, alphabetized. It skips, it does skip a few letters, by the way. So don't like go and study the Hebrew and say, "Wow, well, you're really wrong on that. No, it does skip a few letters. But the acrostic runs straight from nine into chapter 10. And also the other thing is at the end of nine, notice that it says Selah, which means pause for a moment before moving on, right? Quiet the noise, reflect on that before you continue. And then it takes us right into Psalm 10. So so, uh, chapter nine, for the choir director on Muth Laban, or your translation might say to the tune of the death of the son, a Psalm of David. It says, I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart. I will tell of your wonders. I will be glad and exalt in you. I will sing praises to your name, O Most High. Notice in just two verses, he says, "I will." He, four different times. David does, doesn't qualify his willingness, his will. It's not contingent on how his life is going. No, no, he just says, I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart. Lord, you are worthy of me praising you. Not just when I feel like it, or not just half of my being, not just half-hearted, but with my whole heart, with every single fiber of my being. Lord, you're worthy of it. Whatever, again, the context of this psalm, We don't know the exact context and it makes it a struggle, but we know David's kind of life and we know his ups and his downs. Whatever the pain is that we're gonna see throughout these two Psalms, David is recognizing, and again, we're gonna look at it as we continue, that there are wicked people In the world, I think we can all kind of relate to that. We kind of agree. We see that things are happening all around us, all around David. That shouldn't be happening, and it's hard to, you know, wrestle with that thought of like, if God is a God of love, right? He's on the throne. He's in charge. And how can these things be happening, right? How do you resolve that? There's a tension there, but he starts out by saying, in the midst of that, in the midst of life's hard circumstances, whatever the exact context is of his writing, he says, I will give thanks or I will praise you with my heart, with all my heart. Again, not half-hearted, my whole heart. And then he says, I will tell all of all your wonders. One of the ways that we, or that David, I should say, can give <laughs> thanks or give praise to the Lord It's to tell people about him, to tell people about his wonders, to speak it out, to give testimony of all the great things that God has done for you. You know, you think about it just in your own life tonight, like how has God been faithful to you? It's one of my most favorite things about Testimony Sunday is just to hear more stories about how God has been faithful, how he's showed himself strong to someone. David's like, I will tell of your wonders, share it, speak about it. That's the failure, you know, when you come to Joshua and then you get to Judges, that was the biggest failure of the nation. They forgot to tell of the wonders of the Lord, how he's been faithful. They didn't pass it down. David's saying, man, I'm going to tell of your wonders. Let that be just a challenge. Be reminded just personally, how has God been faithful to you? But don't stay silent about it. Tell someone about it. Speak it out. I will be glad in verse two and exalt you. David here is just piling up words to describe this joy-filled thanks to the Lord. He says, I will be glad and exalt, or or maybe your translation says rejoice in you. I will sing praises to your name, O most high. David recognizing God, you're above all. And he's celebrating, rejoicing in who God is. And now in verse three, he acknowledges God for what he'll do. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before you. Lord, you're the one who defeats my enemies, right? There's no longer just this general praise, right? Lord, we just rejoice in you. And it's not this generic, but David's getting specific here. Look at verse four, for you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne judging righteously. David's saying, Lord, you're the one on the throne. No matter what's happening all around me, you're the one judging rightly. I can trust you for that. I know your character, God. You'll be my defense, he says. Verse five, you've rebuked the nations. You've destroyed the wicked. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. David sees the end as he's writing, their end. He sees that God, he's moving in their midst. Notice in verse four and five, how often he's using the word you. Lord, you are the one who's doing all of this. This is the work of your hand, not mine. You rebuke the nations. You destroy the wicked. You blot out their names. It's the work of God. We can trust him. We don't have to take matters into our own hands to defend ourselves. The enemy has come to an end in perpetual ruins, Verse six, and you have uprooted the cities. The very memory of them has perished, but the Lord, I love this, abides forever. You know, when we see this world just falling apart all around us, man, I pray that we remember that this is not our home. The earth may pass away, right? The earth may come to ruins, but I love in verse seven, the Lord, he says, abides forever. The wicked, they're gonna be put to an end, but who won't? The Lord. The Lord will abide forever. The Lord is the reigning king. He has established his throne for judgment. He will judge the world in righteousness. Amen to that? He will judge the world in righteousness. He's the ultimate Supreme Court. Amen? He will execute judgment for the peoples with equity. He's saying that the Lord is going to do what earthly judges won't do. And you know what that is? Produce righteous justice. Won't that day be amazing when we finally see justice? The things that have been wrong brought right. True justice I'm I'm speaking about. It almost sounds too good to be true when thinking about it. Like, man, I don't know. I can't think of a reality of that. That would actually exist. You know, but listen, we are living in crazy, crazy political times, aren't we? And on one side of the spectrum, the political spectrum, you have people just screaming for social justice. There needs to be more social justice. I could be sympathetic toward their cause. But you hear the, the, the screaming, there needs to be you know, equality for, for all, all races and gender. There needs to be Medicare for all, there needs to be welfare, you know, whatever the, listen, fighting for social justice is like putting a Band-Aid when you need open heart surgery. Our greatest problem As a nation, notice that. I'm not saying our only problem. Our greatest problem as a nation is not inequality of race, gender, or income. Our greatest problem is not the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer. Our greatest problem is sin. Sin has ruined everything. But listen, the good news is that Jesus has Come and He is a remedy for the sin in our world. Listen, our country, you guys, I'm sure, will just amen to this, is in mass need of revival. We don't need monetary fixes, though it's nice. But again, those are band aid situations and issues. We need revival, true Holy Spirit revival, true, genuine repentance where we come back to Jesus, when Jesus is fully reigning, not just in our country, but just in our hearts alone, but in this world. And listen, when Jesus is fully ruling and reigning, all of those other needs, because they are needs, right? They're going to be met. They're naturally going to be met. That's what we see in the book of Acts when Jesus is ruling in hearts, man. There's not a need among them. Man, that's what we want to see. I'm just imagining this as I was typing this up today. It's like, what if the whole state of Oregon got saved? You, you laugh because you're like, Man, I can't, my mind doesn't even go there. Like I can't compute, like will not compute. Like, but what if Jesus was fully ruling and reigning just in Milwaukee, in every heart, in every life, in every home, It doesn't matter what Salem legislates for us. You know what I mean? At that point, it doesn't matter because Jesus is king. He's ruling. That's what we want. That's what we need to pray for. Revival, Lord, in my heart. Revival in our church in our family. We need to seek the Lord because one day he is coming back to judge. That's the reality. He will bring about justice. But man, if we want to experience justice on this earth, We need Jesus to reign in hearts. Amen. He will judge, say it again, the world in righteousness. And he will execute judgment for the peoples with equity. The Lord will also be a stronghold or, or refuge, that word is, for the oppressed. Amen to that? Let's just read that again. The Lord also will be a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. If you have a highlighter, highlight that verse. If you have a smartphone, tap on the verse and click yellow. A stronghold, a refuge in times of trouble and those who know your name, I hope that's you tonight, will put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Another great verse, I'm gonna read again. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Listen, even when we feel forsaken, his word stands above our emotions. Even when we feel lonely and you're brokenhearted and you're just... Filled with anxiety, his word says that he will not forsake those who seek him. We can count on him. He's that sure foundation. As Pastor Joshua was, was just praying that he is the strong tower that the righteous can run to and find safety. He'll be a stronghold, a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Verse 11, sing praises to the Lord, who dwells in Zion, declare among the peoples his deeds. For he who requires blood remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. David, David here is encouraging others just to join in with him. Sing praise. He's saying, come on guys, declare to everyone his deeds, his workings, his faithfulness. In verse 12, he says that he does not forget the cry of the afflicted. The New Living Translation says he does not ignore the cries of those who suffer. Man, thank you, Lord. When everyone else has forgotten about the oppressed, when everyone else has ignored those who are suffering in your life, and maybe you're like, that's me, I'm the suffering one. David says, the Lord doesn't. He doesn't ignore the cries. Verse 13, be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. You who lift me up from the gates of death that I may tell of your praises that in the gates of your daughter of Zion, I may rejoice in your salvation. David here is pleading for the mercy of God. He's saying, Lord, you see the oppressed. You see the afflicted. Would you remember me too? <laughs> Would you see my affliction too? There in verse 13. Verse 13. Why does he say that? So that you would be glorified, Lord, so that I may tell of your praises. Not for my sake, not for my comfort, not for my glory. God is for you. Would you look at my situation and remember me? Verse 15: The nations have sunk down in the pit which they have made, in the net which they hid. Their own foot has been caught. David's aware that the very pit that the enemies dug for him is the same pit they'll find themselves in. Isn't that funny? He's saying their own ruin will be brought on by none other than themselves. David Gutzik says this, even the best plans and efforts of those who oppose God end up serving his purposes. Even the best plans and efforts of those who oppose God end up serving his purposes. And that is so true. We see that all throughout scripture, time and time again. You think of Joseph and his brothers. They were fighting against God's plan for Joseph's life. And how did it end? God's plan only got farther all the more. It got advanced. Or you think of Haman. Remember, we studied the book of Esther. He thinks he's so clever, he's finally going to get rid of and kill Mordecai, the Jew. So he builds the gallows. And what happens? It turns on him. How does it end? Haman himself, on the very gallows that he intended to kill Mordecai on, there he gets executed. Not Mordecai, it was Haman. No one, as I said a couple of weeks ago, no one can thwart the plans of the Lord. No one, no matter how close, crafty or clever, they think they are, no one can stop the Lord. Verse 16, the Lord has made himself known. Highlight that one. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment in the work of his own hands. The wicked is snared. And then he says, Higion, say law. What the heck does Higion mean? I'm going to have Pastor Josh give us an explanation. (laughs) I'm sure he could. That's your guys' research. Again, it's kind of like Shiggy on last week. Some camp says one thing, the other scholars say the other thing, but I'm going to go with meditate. Meditate on this. Slow down again. Before Before you just ponder and move on, that's Selah. Meditate more on what has just been said. Reflect. He says, the Lord makes himself known in his doing. His ways are obvious. His judgments are good. The wicked, on the other hand, they're going to get caught in their own trap. Meditate on that. Hegeon, say law. Because the wicked, listen, They're not getting ahead. They're not getting away with everything. They're not gaining a leg up on everybody else. It may seem like that right now, but it's not true. He says in verse 17, the wicked will return to Sheol. Maybe your translation says hell. The wicked will return to hell. Dang, that's some serious verbiage here. No sugarcoating. Even all the nations who forget God, David is bringing to light the future of the wicked. It's not a bright one for them. Verse 18, for the needy will not always be forgotten. How, How amazing is that verse? For the needy will not always be forgotten, nor the hope of the afflicted perish forever. Man, notice this great contrast here. He says, the wicked nations, the wicked, they've all forgotten about God. They're gonna end up returning to Sheol, to the grave. Um, They will long be forgotten about, but the needy, those who who feel as though God's forgotten about them in the here and the now, in their present circumstance, he says, they can trust that forgetfulness and perishing are not God's final words to them. That their hope is one that is sure and steadfast because it's rooted in who God is. I love that. Let's read that verse one more time. Verse 18, for the needy will not always be forgotten, nor the hope of the afflicted perish forever forever. Arise, O Lord. Do not let man prevail. How many of you have prayed that lately when watching the news? Arise, O Lord. Like, don't let man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. Saylah. Pause for a moment. Quiet down. Just marinate in that truth before you move on. Think about that. Saying, Lord, put things into right perspective. All these power hungry leaders out there, they think they can just do anything and everything. Lord, would you just simply remind them that they're they're but men? That's it? That in the grand scheme of things, that they're nothing? Lord, would you remind them of that? Say law. Think about that. Meditate on that. Chapter 10 Why do you stand far off, O Lord? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Let me ask you, have you ever felt like David here? Why do you stand so far away from me, God? Why do you hide yourself? I can't find you. Lord, don't you see what I'm going through? Don't you see the burdens I'm bearing? Don't you see my struggle? God, why are you distant right now? Why are you hiding yourself in times of trouble? He says in verse two, in in pride, Lord, The wicked hotly pursue the afflicted. This is not good. Let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. For the wicked boasts of his heart's desire. And the greedy man curses and spurns the Lord. I can just get the sense This feeling that David would be writing of just like, ah, like, Lord, like, can't you see what's happening in the world around me? Or in my own life, whatever the the context is. The wicked, these horrible people, they're filled with just arrogance and pride. They're attacking the afflicted. They're taking advantage of the poor. He says, the wicked boasts in his heart's desire. Whatever his heart wants, that's what he's after. The greedy man, he says, curses the Lord. These are horrible people. Verse 4, the wicked in the haughtiness of his countenance does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there's no God. His ways prosper at all times. That's to the wicked. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. For all of his adversaries, he snorts at them. He thinks he's invisible. He's saying, Lord, they have no reverence for you. Verse 6, He says to himself, real quick. Three times in the coming verses, it's going to say he says to himself, and he's going to just tell us about the rationale of the people who don't know the Lord, the wicked people, people who aren't following the Lord. This is how they think. He says to himself, verse six: I will not be moved throughout all generations. I will, I will not be in adversity. With some arrogance there. When someone, you know, isn't following the Lord, they think they're invincible, right? Nothing can stop them. At some point in their lives, they've bought into the lie of the world that the world's going to give them everything that they could ever want to make their little hearts happier than they've ever been or could be. They think that they're above suffering, They see themselves as immovable. And you just see the the pride of the heart here, the the self-confidence here in verse 6. His mouth, verse 7, is full of curses and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue is mischief and wickedness. He sits in the lurking places of the villages. I'm not too sure what those places are, but don't go there. Stay out of the lurking places in the villages, all right? In the hiding places, he kills the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the unfortunate. He's got this plan, right? He's secretly waiting. He's in the bushes. He's waiting patiently on who he can devour. Kind of sounds kind of interesting, right? In the, the New Testament. Our adversary, the lion, roaring lion, yeah. He lurks in the hiding place as a lion is lair. He lurks to catch the afflicted. He catches the afflicted when he draws them into his net. He couches, he crouches, I should say. He bows down, and the unfortunate fall by his mighty ones. The psalmist here, he's likening this person to a beast. or a hungry lion waiting to patiently pounce on his prey to devour his victim. Not a second thought in mind, just, hey, this is what I'm after. And I'm going to wait here. Like I haven't eaten in five days and there's a steak on the table, right? Like I'm just going to go for it. And I am just going to devour. Now here's the next thing he says in verse 11. He says to himself, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Isn't that the falsy thinking of this world, by the way? That somehow God is just going to be blind to their sin, to our sin. That he doesn't care. That his eyes are closed. That he's not watching us. He can't see what we're doing. Again, so much pride in the heart to think that we're just above God. God's forgotten. He has hidden his face. He'll never see it. Verse 12 Arise, O Lord. Oh God, lift up your hand. Do not forget the afflicted. David's had enough here. He's pleading. He's calling God. God, take action, if you will. Lord, get up and do something. Lift up your head and see what's going on in our current circumstance and situation. The wicked says that you're going to forget. Lord, please don't forget the afflicted. Why has the wicked spurned God? He has said to himself again, You will not require it. That is, I'm going to get away with this thing. No one's seeing it. God doesn't, he seems to have turned a blind eye to whatever I'm doing. It's all cool. Like, I'm going to get away with this thing. Everything's going to be fine. And David is just, you know, like clenching the fist. Like, God, verse 14, you have seen it. For you have beheld mischief and vexation to take it into your hand. I love this. David says, but you've seen it, Lord. You're not far off. I think of the words of Psalm 34. The Lord is near to the broken heart and saves those whose spirits are crushed. That's God. He says, the unfortunate commits himself to you. You have been the helper of the orphan." You know, over and over again in scripture, the Lord says, especially in the Old Testament, concerning the orphan, concerning the widow, you mess with him, you mess with me. Again, Ryan's translation. <laughs> That's God's heart. He's the defender of the oppressed. Verse 15, break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Seek out his wickedness until you find none. David, just in this warrior-like fashion, using strong language. He's not like, Lord, would you, just, would you just deal with what's going on here? I trust you. Amen. Walks away. No, no. He's like, Lord, would you deal with this? And by the way, I have some ideas on how you can do it. Like, you can break their arms. Would you seek them out? Would you hunt them down until you can't find any more wickedness? (laughs) i got some ideas if you're running out, Lord. Like, I've got some plans of my own here. Here I am, Lord, send me. Was that Isaiah? (laughs) David here right now. The Lord, in verse 16, is king forever and ever. Amen to that? The Lord is king forever and ever. Nations have perished forever. From his land. Oh, Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will strengthen their heart. Lord, because you're gracious, it's who you are. It says you're going to strengthen their hearts. You will incline your ear. I love how he's just ending this. To vindicate the orphan and the oppressed. So that man who is of the earth will no longer cause terror. He says, the Lord is king forever and ever. Who? One more time. Who? The The Lord is king. Amen. It's forever and ever. And being the righteous judge that he is, David says, he will vindicate the orphan and the oppressed and the needy so that evil men may no longer hurt them. What an amazing psalm that we can trust the Lord. As we close tonight, um, Josh is going to come out. I want to wrap up just our time with a couple final thoughts as we think about these three psalms. And that is this. When you're going through a difficult time in your life, when the oppressors are doing their job at oppressing (laughs) or you're seeing wicked people win or you feel forgotten, you're getting always the short end of the stick in your life. Just like last week, remember who God is. Remember his greatness. Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth, his vastness. Remember it, his ability that he's created all things. That he's limitless, man. His power has no limit. And when you're thinking about who God is and his greatness, his glory, his majesty, his power, don't forget this amazing and important truth: that he's mindful of you, that he's mindful of me, that he's not some distant dictator up in the sky who's not acquainted with all of our ways. No, no, no. He's near to the brokenhearted. He is mindful of the hurting. He's the stronghold to the oppressed. He's a refuge in times of trouble. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. The needy, we we just read, will not go forgotten. And when the wicked seem to be flourishing, even in their own eyes, and it seems like God, again, is a million miles away from you. Remember that the Lord is king forever and ever. He's king. and We're trusting him, the king of kings. That he hears the desires of the humble, that he desires to strengthen your heart tonight. Maybe tonight you're, you're feeling weak and you're feeling like, man, I need to be strengthened. That's his heart for you. His heart is to incline his ear to you to be with you, to meet you right where you're at tonight. That's the kind of God that we are coming to in worship, even right now. Father, tonight, that's who we're, we're coming before you. And Lord, I pray tonight that we would come before you in all honesty right now. And lay before you, God, our current reality. Lord, here's where I'm at. Not that you don't know, because Lord, you're acquainted with all of our ways your word tells us. But Lord, help us just to open our hearts up to you and allow you to be our refuge and our strength, that ever-present help in time of trouble, to have you strengthen our hearts, knowing that you care for us, you're mindful of us, God. Help us just to, Say law right now, marinate in that wonderful truth. Bask in your amazing love for us right now, Lord. And through it all, God, cause our hearts to worship you. You're so worthy of our praise, of our worship. We say tonight as your people, O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth lord we love you we worship you we praise you in Jesus name amen amen as we've been we've done in the past i just want to always leave it open to whatever the Lord has. But uh, if you need prayer for anything, man, you're like, man, I just need the Lord to strengthen or, or whatever. If, if, if the Lord ministered to you in any way, we want to pray for you as we're worshiping. And um, my wife and I will be up in the front and just or grab someone that you're sitting next to and just like, man, I just want to take the, this burden to the Lord. Do it. And that's what we're here for. Let's be the church. We're going to respond to God tonight as we worship. We're, we're not going to hurry this moment. We're just going to say, God, coming before you. We're going to do business with you, Lord.